On episode 79 of DevTalk, I speak to Mo Ramazanpour about the state of mobile development. Welcome to another episode of DevTalk. My name is Kerry Lothrop, and today's guest is Mo Ramazanpour. Mo is a mobile architect at Zulka. We actually worked together in a project, or we're, well, past project, but I'm still on that project. And he's been a mobile architect for more than 10 years, um, and I, it's a lot of fun to work with Mo because he's very insightful on everything mobile. So I'm really happy to have him here for a chat today. Hello, Mo. Hi, Kerry. It's good to be here. It, it is it is fun to chat with you. So I'm also very happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we, uh, I think we we met like half a year, over half a year ago already, um, when when we got put into a project together. And we're both doing the same role as mobile architects in that project. It's a big UK customer. And it's always good to to hear your take on things. So I thought it would be, be good to have like a really high-level conversation about mobile development in general at this point. What, what, what are we, or what, what do you think, where, where has mobile app development come to from or where where are we at right now? Do you have have an an answer to that? Uh, yeah, that that is that is an interesting question of where it has come to. Um, it is very interesting to see in the past few years that, of course, there is always new technologies coming out on iOS and Android. But we have definitely come to a period that it is no longer a new technology. Right, people understand what mobile apps are. Mm -hmm. uh, it's become more commonplace. What sort of things you can do, what sort of things you can't do. It has become much more common to start thinking about, okay, how can you have apps that are stable? How can you have mission-critical apps as opposed to just, oh, uh, I'm a company, we don't know what this app thing is, but we think we need an app. So, so maturity has definitely changed in the past few years, I would say. Yeah, I, I was thinking people also typically get a very much they're very much in contact with mobile apps in general because people just mm. cling to their phones all day and they see all these apps from like large companies that typically do their job pretty well so we're we're in a at a point where where people ha have a good understanding yeah like you said people know what mobile apps can do and what they can't at a high level so that's uh, very interesting. I mean, and you you mentioned Android and iOS. I mean, we're stuck with these platforms, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> looks like it. I, I don't see any discussion of people doing any other platforms these days. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard them. No, no. Like Windows Phone died somehow. Then there was like Firefox OS that that died, and uh, I don't know is is Tizen still a thing? Maybe on TVs, but it it, it seems yeah. But I mean, so we're here. We have two platforms. People develop apps uh, for well. It looks like they're accompanying something else, typically, right? Um, yeah. Or maybe th those are the projects that reach us at Azuka. They're a little bit more complex. You've got backends. You maybe have some devices even. Yeah, uh, I guess I guess the extent of what's accompanied by it is variable, but it is very rare these days for you to just have an app that is just on the phone. It doesn't 
connect with anything else. Maybe if you have some sort of uh, local game, that is yeah. the case. Mm-hmm. But almost always, whatever you do, you you do interact with an ecosystem, e- even if it's uh, just something simple that you have an app that wants to sync your status between your phone A and your phone B. Mm-hmm. It is it, it it still involves some sort of backend written by the by the developers themselves or using something like iCloud or Firebase. It's very common, I would say. Yeah. And well, dealing with these two platforms, so we, uh, I mean, there are different approaches at doing that. There's the menu, like the manufacturers say, here, use Swift, use Xcode, use Kotlin, use Android Studio, and just build an app each. And then there are these approaches to share some of that that code uh, to maybe not implement it twice, uh, every, everything twice. So where do you see us at this point? Or do, do you use cross-platform your projects or are you a fan or? Um, we, in the projects, I mean, we tend not to use uh, cross-platform too much. Um, mm-hmm. we, we do, uh, as you know, in our company, we do tend to have a niche for apps that are reasonably complicated. They have reasonably uh, high requirements around integration with operating system, things around security, mm-hmm. uh, things around accessibility. I, I guess for me, what's more important than sharing the code is sharing the thinking and the architecture. So of course, yeah. there are things that happen differently on iOS and Android, especially with Swift and Kotlin, your code is closer to each other than it was ever before. Right, yeah. Uh, especially with, uh, for example, async await YMB on iOS as a native thing, you have it in common with Kotlin. And uh, as you very well know, it's just finally caught up with .NET in this regard. Yeah. So you can even share your thinking with any Xamarin code base you have. Yeah, uh, I, I guess I, I tend to think of it from three different parts of the code base. Uh, one is the UI. One is system integration, and the third one is core logic. Mm-hmm. For UI, I have not come across any technology that can do this well. And cross-platform, you mean, right? Yes, to to okay. be able to do cross-platform UI well. Yeah. And for me, it is a uh, it, it it is a fundamental issue of some of the approaches. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the problem I see is you have two platforms with very different idioms, with very different tooling. If you have a framework that has its own way of writing things, you can think of uh, Flutter, for example. Yeah. Well, you're inevitably going to get clashes, right? Because mm-hmm. you you write your code with one set of concepts, and then when it gets uh, translated to iOS and then when it gets translated to Android, it needs to inevitably change how it works. Yeah. And for example, if we take the two very common frameworks here, React Native and Flutter, they do have different approaches and each of them has its own upside and its own downside. For Flutter, yes, they rewrite everything from scratch. So that means they have control over everything. But it also means they always have to uh, redo whatever operating system changes has happened in the latest version of the OS. Yeah. So um, 
if something is introduced for, let's say, iOS 16 in June, as we would normally expect, uh, the Flutter team doesn't even have any idea that it's coming right now, right? So maybe right. they have the beta period to try and catch up, but inevitably the history of Flutter has shown that they won't be able to catch up. There is still a good list of features from the iOS, because uh, I talk about iOS because I'm more familiar with that, that you still cannot do in Flutter. Yeah. And and, and we had a uh, Flutter project last year, and you have this typical problem of it takes you 80% there, and then the last 20%, you're suddenly stuck. So so they had serious issues with seemingly simple thing, which is about just being able to type into a text field with your keyboard. And okay. there were quite <laughs> a few bugs around that. And yeah, like, for example, they couldn't upgrade to the latest version because it would make this bug worse. There were forks that would try to fix this. So you suddenly end up, yes, maybe writing less quote-unquote code, but you all of your time gets diverted into actually debugging the tool itself. Yeah, and 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 also the, the other part of, part of it for me is many of these frameworks they focus a lot on making sure that the visual interface looks good because that is how they sell it. Look at these yeah. shiny apps that we can do. Look that you can do these animations. It, it's super smooth. But actually, something that often gets missed is accessibility. There are two parts to it, again. One is I don't think it ends up being as much of a priority for these teams because they do need to try and catch up with everything else. And then the second is, once again, because you're writing your own infrastructure, you need to do much more work to be able to catch up to what the operating system has done. Yeah. Yeah, maybe this this is a good example. Um, it, in the project uh, we, we were both on, uh, without too, telling too many details, uh, like there was a navigation or tab bar at the bottom. They're using a tab bar in the app. Every or like half of the apps have a tab bar. That's that's pretty normal. And then there was a a bug in the tooling. So the app uses Xamarin, and there's a bug in the tooling in the Xamarin tooling that prevents the use of this tab bar. So what did they do? They reimplemented this. Uh, this tab bar by themselves. And at first glance, it looks like, yeah, it does the job, but it, there's just, there's just so much behind there. Like, like you mentioned accessibility, also the, the animations giving you the impression of what this does, or that like each tab should have its own uh, stack of views that it's displaying. Um, and yeah, in the end, yeah, because of the, the cross-platform approach, we came to a solution that has deficits in accessibility, for example. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that, that, that is a very good example of it. Another example that we had in React Native was a caveat that this is about, this is from my experience a couple of years ago, so I haven't looked into any changes they've done recently. Yeah. Uh, but, but some of the things that was always a problem was even though React Native uses native components, because of the way that the code is described, they were not able to use navigation views and like table views from the OS implementation. So they were implementing something that behaves like a navigation view or something that behaves like a table view. Yeah. And 
in those cases, again, the thing that uh, caused it not to be suitable for a project that we were considering was accessibility of it. The table that you would have written with React Native, if you scrolled down the list, it would load everything very nice. It had animations. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you were using VoiceOver to scroll down the list, uh, when you get near the bottom of the screen, it wouldn't detect that there should be one more row and keep scrolling down. It would just stop. So you would have to maybe use a different gesture to scroll down for it to realize, uh -huh. ah, okay. there are new rows that I need to look at. The, 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 these tend to kill any sort of productivity gain you have from uh, writing the code once. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, and maybe back to a thing you said. Uh, so so if you're you're developing apps completely on the stack as intended by the the OS manu manufacturers so uh, how and you you mentioned sharing the architecture what, what does this mean in practice so if you if you have an app my typical example is more difficult more, slightly more complicated than the typical example of a to-do app my mm -hmm. typical example is a banking app which means it's 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 something that you need you have a bunch of different states you need to be able to log in you log out there tend to be security measures around it so for example uh if the app detects that the binary has been modified or if there's a debugger attached you might yeah. say Oops, sorry you can't do anything with the app of course this is not just for banking but these days typically if you have an app uh you tend to have features to allow force update or remotely disabling the app if you find any security issues. One one way of looking at uh, all of these features is to look at them one by one, right? So you say, mm -hmm. okay, uh, I have an app, the app just launched. Uh, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to check integrity of the binary. Yeah, okay, uh, binary secure, I'm done with that. On to the next thing. Now I need the user to log in. I show this login screen. Uh, login screen, let me know when you're done. And then the login screen takes you directly to post login whenever you uh, do your login, right? Yeah. None of the stuff that I talked about really talked about the difference between iOS and Android, right? So mm -hmm. how you manage this flow can be very similar for iOS and for Android at an architectural level. Especially, I think, what is important uh, when I say at the architecture level, is if you have good state-driven architecture, mm -hmm. uh, they would make it much more easier to have something uniform across the two platforms. What I mean by that is, in the example I just gave, you could have a what I call procedural way of doing things, which is uh, your login view, whenever you press the login button, goes through some sort of backend and says, hey, am I the right person? Gets a token, comes back. It's like, yes, I got a token. Mm -hmm. in, in, in many apps that you see, what the login screen will do is like, ah, okay, uh, I'm going to, if you use UIKit terminology, for example, uh, oh, I'm going to load the post-login view controller and yep. give it the token and say, you take it over from here. But you've inevitably coupled those two concepts together that your login knows about you your post-login. Mm -hmm. Whereas what I tend to prefer to have is a logical state of the application. So whether you're logged in or not is purely just a state. For people on Android, I think the view state way of doing things has come a little bit closer to doing things this way, although that's within view. 
which is you have a very conceptual state, maybe as an enum, that mm -hmm. says the app is in the state of logged in. The app is in the state of not logged in. And usually there's some uh, associated data that goes with that, which is if you are logged in, then you have a token. If you're not logged in, then you have some sort of interface that lets you log in. Uh, and by interface there, I meant programming interface, not user interface. Yeah. So all of the all of these things that I said is about how you structure your app, uh, and and that can be exactly the same on iOS and Android. So um, sharing the state between the the two different platforms, um, can you apply that to like the the uh, approach to like, like um, we have different models that we that we can use like MVC, MVVM, MVU, MVP. Is this something that platforms can share and use to uh, represent state and then transfer that state into a user interface? Uh, yes. So representation, if you mean actually in code, uh, often not because you tend to have the two languages. Yeah. Uh, although there are ways of doing it if if you use uh, some sort of third language that would generate your models for you. Mm -hmm. I've never found that to be useful give, because the models aren't, the states aren't too complicated that would need a generator, which yeah. actually I'll come back to that in a second. Actually, when I think about an app's mobile apps architecture, I often find it a diversion when the concept of MVC, MVVM, MVI these days come in, because mm -hmm. in all of those acronyms, maybe putting aside Viper, most of the app is concentrated in that first M. So you say model, it does stuff, and then we display it. Actually, displaying of it is for me the more straightforward part. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. easy, because you, know, you could have very complicated device, but it is more a mapping challenge. Yeah. The, the fact that you are logged in is true if you have an iOS app, you have an Android app, or if you just have a command line tool that says, hey, what state am I in? Mm -hmm. So really, if you, if you want to be able to have an app that is reliable and that, that can consistently go between these, again, uh, here's the word, uh, going between these states, mm -hmm. uh, you would need that to be abstracted from your presentation method of choice. And that is very common between the two platforms. Uh, and actually, that, that state, you can have it in at different layers, right? So you of, of course, you have a view state. You, If you have a list and you scroll down, your view state is changed because you mm -hmm. have an offset to apply. Okay. You have it at application logical state, the sort of examples we've been talking about, am I logged in or not? Mm -hmm. Am I onboarded or not? But actually it can apply at a higher level. So we applied this in the NHS COVID-19 app, which as you know, we worked on last year. Yeah. The NHS COVID-19 app has the logic to tell you when you need to isolate. So the idea is if you, if during the pandemic in the UK, if you got a positive test, you should isolate. If you're in contact with someone else through the app, you're advised to isolate. 
And this isolation comes with a duration, right? Yeah, so for it, example, it always changes the rules, right? <laughs> exactly that, yeah. yeah. So uh, if you had a positive test, they might say, okay, you need to isolate for 10 days from the date of the positive test. Mm -hmm. But of course, we wouldn't want to make it easy for people to follow this. So all of the, this calculation is in the app. So the app would know when you've had a exposure to someone else, the app would know when you have a positive test. Mm -hmm. And based on that, give you the uh, isolation advice. Now, when you actually start this, when we actually started this, you, of course, start from something very simple, right? So the very first isolation logic that we had is if I'm not isolated, and I'm exposed to someone above the risk threshold, then I should isolate. That's yeah. nice and easy. Mm -hmm. But over time, you, as you add different features and different policies, so you may end up isolating because of a positive test, you may isolate because of symptoms, and, it, and the length of the isolation and shape of isolation is different depending on how these things happen. Mm -hmm. For example, for people who were testing positive after their symptoms, actually, they were already symptomatic. So they were isolating from when their symptoms started, not from when they got their positive test. Okay. Putting all of these things together, we actually ended up with a state machine with in the order of a thousand transitions. Okay. And, and this, this is the common public is, is supposed to understand this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and actually, like, it is in many situations, easier to apply the logic if you're human, mm -hmm. ah. because you know the particular scenario that has happened. But when you're when you're encoding it in a machine, you have to be very specific about certain edge cases. So mm -hmm. we would have to worry about things of what happens if I do a have a positive test, then a negative test, and then you have a contact and you get another positive test, or things like that would happen. We would actually need to think through the situation. Whereas if you're applying this as a human, it would be easier to know, okay, I did the positive in this context, and that's why this one might be applied. Okay. Those 700 transitions, in order to be able to understand what those transitions are, both at the implementation stage, but even before when you're defining the feature and say exactly how it should behave, mm -hmm. we created a isolation model that is fully independent of the app. So it, it's not actually shipped within the app, but oh. abstractly defines the states that you have. So am I isolating? Which What reason am I isolating with? And it abstractly defines those uh, transitions. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is us effectively encoding the graph that you would have for this state machine. Okay. And then, and then you could have very abstract tests for this, right? So you have immediate things that you can think of when you just create a graph like that, which is, I should have a rule set that defines that in any state I'm in, when an event happens, what should be the final state? Mm -hmm. Well, you could have a test that just says, well, make sure we do have the right rule set. Because it was a complicated state that we were trying to describe, there were certain states that were representable in the type that we had, but actually impossible. So yeah. we could write tests that say, these things that are representable, make sure we actually don't end up in them. Um, mm -hmm. And this was, this was a tool that we defined. Now, 
we wrote this completely outside the app, but we, we had applications of it in two contexts. One, first of all, now that we've encoded this, we can visualize it. So instead of someone by hand, every time rules changed, uh, went ahead and like produce something on mirror board or documentation around how do I, what happens if I'm not isolated and I get a contact? Yeah. Well, I go to this state. Uh, we could actually generate that from the tool itself. Mm -hmm. The second part was the rule set that we had could generate test cases for the app. So any transition in the state machine, so the given when then, mm -hmm. is exactly what you need for a test. So we had a bunch of tests that it would say, okay, I'm going to put the app in the given state. I'm going to apply the condition. Did I end up in the right state? And this is where I bring it back to the cross-platform. Uh, because the tool from, was from outside, we could actually generate those test cases once and make sure that iOS and Android app both follow the same rule set. Did you use like Gherkin syntax in the test cases? Okay, so so this is where I show my <laughs> own preference. <laughs> because, because, well, because I like Swift, <laughs> the tool itself was written in Swift. Mm -hmm. For iOS, that meant we could just directly use the output. Yeah. For Android, we had a custom JSON representation of all of the test cases. Mm -hmm. It's basically all you need is you need the enums of your transitions and your state to match between iOS and Android. Yeah. And then it would fill out all of the transitions for you. So we mm -hmm. would export that as uh, part of the iOS CI pipeline. We would import it to Android. Uh, we would test it there. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, the the Gherkin syntax is used in mm -hmm. a, a lot of uh, a lot of platforms. I'm I'm sure I haven't used it for for Swift and Kotlin, but I'm sure you can like define uh, what the different given when thens are, and then you can you can write code for that in each language, and that would also also follow that. Yeah, but but mm -hmm. very very interesting that you were able to to automate that. So I was not part of this project. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think this was a very important feature for us. Yeah. Because uh, as you can imagine, for an app of this scale and this importance, yep. and for something as core as the isolation logic, it, it had to be very solid. Yeah, I mean, lives, lives actually depend on it, right? Exactly that, yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Well, the, it really got me thinking. I think I've got to look at new... Greenfield projects in a different light based on what you just mm -hmm. said. So thank you very much for those insights. <laughs> hmm. So where do you see the whole of mobile development heading in the future? Ooh, uh, very, very broad question. <laughs> it uh, is. So, uh, well, let, let's start with the obvious, which it doesn't look like uh, mobile platforms themselves are going away anytime soon. There, there yeah. will definitely be a lot of evolution to it, but the concept of a thing that is with you, that is very personal, but also very connected, is going mm -hmm. to stay there. I'm not going to guess about <laughs> if there is going to be any entirely new platform, but in the short term, at short to medium term, at least, we're going to be stuck with Android and iOS, which does mean the problem of uh, cross-platform development is not going to go away. Yeah. One particular area that I'm very much interested in is what would 
be the evolution of tools that help you with cross-platform core logic. So mm-hmm. in the in in that in the area that I thought that can be shared, I think you might have apps that have very simple logic, equivalent of two plus two equal four, mm-hmm. which would always be considered too much of an overhead to use a third tool to you write that logic. Yeah. And then you have apps. My go-to example for this is something like uh, maybe a Shazam that actually has a complicated algorithm that they might have to write, and they might prefer that to write that in uh, one language and yeah. then share across the two platforms. And there, you it might be easy to see the benefits of using a cross-platform tool, be it uh, some language that uh, is compatible with ABI on iOS and Android, Mm -hmm. um, something like C++, Rust, or even, uh, it still happens, people write code in C. Uh, Or it's be the other way around, uh, like uh, Kotlin multi-platform, or it can even be something like uh, Xamarin-like technology that you write your code in .NET and then use it from iOS and Android. I'm very interested in see how they evolve. Um, unfortunately, I think most of those at the time are still in the phase that the cost of integration is a bit too high. So unless your algorithm is fairly complicated, it would probably be easier to write it twice. Yeah, I'm hoping we're going in the right direction there. I'm very interested in KMM. I am interested in seeing uh, Swift on Android, because at least with those two technologies, you are properly at home in one of the platforms and you're just uh, slightly inconvenienced to bring it to the second platform. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And and I mean, if your algorithm is so complex and so important, maybe it won't run on the phone at all. <laughs> and you'll have it somewhere in the back end because it's too valuable to, to be accessible by any, everyone. That is true. Uh, although uh, sometimes it's a matter of you just have a complex rule set that you want to apply. And yeah. with that, I should also bring in context uh, JavaScript. Mm, uh, that's right. I, I, I think those are actually much easier to integrate. So sometimes if you have a complex rule set, you might be able to do it in there as well. Mm. Well, that's right. Well, thanks so much for your insights, Mo. That was really, really uh, eye-opening. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fun for me to have a chat. Thanks for inviting me. Well, uh, talk to you soon in one of our other projects. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we will, yeah. This has been another episode of Dev Talk, and we'll see each other again in four weeks. Bye-bye.